Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Peter Bogdanovich has long been a key player in film history as a chronicler of the great directors, on top of directing films himself. His new documentary, The Great Buster, is about Buster Keaton, and it was released this month. And in November, Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, which co-stars Bogdanovich, finally comes out in a finished form. Bogdanovich, of course, is an authority on Wells, as well as the subject of this film in particular, and we brought together film comic critic Nick Pickerton with Bogdanovich to sit down and talk about Buster and Orson and the enduring strength of their legacies. Let's go to the conversation. I will just say that I am sitting here with Peter Bogdanovich, a film historian, director of some note, Brooks Otter Lake in The Other Side of the Wind, and the helmsman of a new documentary about Buster Keaton, The Great Buster, and we're going to cover both topics um, a little bit. And I wanted to start out on the other side of the wind. When I found out that I was going to be talking to you, and also before I saw the movie in its completed form for the second time, I went back and read the book of interviews that you did with uh, Wells, And it occurred to me that there is an extraordinary amount of kind of dialogue between The Other Side of the Wind as it now exists and that interview book, and that they almost seem to feed into one another. I wonder if that's something that occurred to you upon seeing the completed film. Well, not really. Um, I I didn't, but you're, you're probably right. Orson's impetus to make that film began with a conversation I had with him in, in Mexico. <laughs> he was shooting Catch-22 down, down there with Mike Nichols, and um, I was working on this interview book with him. And he said, come on down to Mexico, Guaymas, Mexico. He said, we can do some interviewing there. So I flew down. and He said he's, his favorite American director is John Ford, and... Um, he said, how's Ford doing? Because he, he knew that I had interviewed Ford. I did a little book on Ford, actually, that I had given him as a present. And I said, well, you know, he can't work. I mean, he's not, nobody wants to hire him because he's sort of considered over the hill. Orson got very upset about that. He said, and the next day, and, and we talked about some other directors like King Vidor and Howard Hawks, and they were all sort of considered to be over the hill, so to speak. And the next day, Orson said, I didn't sleep all night because I was thinking about how awful what you told me is. God, he said, you know, youth and old age, those are the two great times. Middle age is the enemy of art. And um, you know, I've decided I'm going to have to make, I had this idea about a picture, about an older director and a young director. And I'm going to make it now. I'm going to, damn it, I'm going to make the picture now. And that's how it started. A year later, he had a script. And one of the things that struck me is that there's actually like bits of Jake Hannaford dialogue in the This is Orson Welles book. Yeah. You excerpt, um, I think it's a letter that he wrote you, with, which ends with the salutation, remember your heart is God's little garden. <laughs> yes, which, there's also, um, it's a line in the picture, yeah. There's also, um, I think we quoted a couple of lines from the, that he put in the picture that are sort of still there. 
the Medusa's eye. I quote, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it's there. And, and one of the things that runs through the book is this kind of cat and mouse game of you trying to get him to fess up to certain biographical elements in the films and him kind of backing away he didn't, from... He didn't like that, yeah. He didn't want to connect himself autobiographically to the films. I don't know why, I don't know why but he didn't. And, and yet the film is both like an invitation to and a, a avoidance of that because Hannaford... Right. There's Wellesian qualities to the character, but he's also something very different, this sort of very macho guy. Yeah, but in fact, Orson, I remember one time we were in Paris together and he, we had dinner at some absolutely impossible to find restaurant that Orson somehow knew about in the back street somewhere and we had a great steak. And we were pacing up and down the sidewalk and Orson was saying, why shouldn't I play the part? It's a great part. I should play it. But Houston's right for it. God damn it. He's more right for it than I am. And, um, and he, so he finally, John won out because he was more the macho kind of filmmaker that, than Orson was. One of the other things that's so beautifully kind of distilled in the movie as it now exists is this moment where you're seeing a kind of pivot in Hollywood from the old guard, the Houstons and, you know, people who came up through the studio system and the kind of young Turks, new Hollywood, so-called there's even, I think, you know, there's a moment where uh, Dennis Hopper is kind of spouting off about uh, tearing down the old idols and so on, so on and so forth. What what kind of relationship did Wells have with that new Hollywood? Uh, well, I was probably the closest representative of that world, and he, we were we were quite friendly. Um, I don't think he knew anybody, many other people from that period. Um, Henry Jaglum later on, yeah. Uh, but I was sort of caught in the middle between generations because I, I my affection was for the older directors but i was part of the new hollywood which i, I didn't have that much interest in frankly i remember i remember uh being at a dinner party at I mean, a small dinner and i can't remember whose house it was now but um it was about 10 of us and one of, one of them was george cukor was there it was a sit-down dinner and dennis hopper and dennis turns to george at some point and said, we're going to bury you. I hated uh, that moment. I hated Dennis for doing that. And George, of course, in his way, oh, yes, yes, of course, of course, yes, yes, yes. He wasn't going to get into an argument with him. You almost have this sense of, like, the sharks circling throughout the entire thing. Yeah. The, the new Hollywood never c caught up with the old Hollywood. I wonder... Looking at the sort of film within a film, I was reminded a lot about Wells's comments about Antonioni. Do you think he had any sort of conscious models that he was yeah, looking at? he was at? making fun of Antonioni, definitely. Yeah. And, and some of the other uh, more pretentious filmmakers. And yet it's not, as, as parody, it's also kind of 
electric filmmaking. Yeah, well, that's the problem because Orson's so good he couldn't he couldn't make it as bad as he wanted to. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating. It wasn't meant to be bad; it was just meant to be pretentious. And on seeing it, and I'm sure you've seen it many times. Not that many. Oh well, okay. On first seeing it in its assembled form, because this is. Uh, perhaps one of the most legendary unfinished films ever made. I mean, this and like Eisenstein's Que Viva Mexico, maybe. No, Orson did actually shoot everything. Um, mm. We didn't shoot anything. We, 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 uh, added, we didn't add anything, except he had not shot the dummies being, sh- being hit. Mm-hmm. He shot John shooting at the dummies, but he didn't, shoot the, he didn't get the shots of the dummies getting hit. So we did, we did that. Mm-hmm. It's basically a special effect. And we also shot, and he had, he, he had shot uh, the drive-in screen at the end, but, we, but we, we had to put the film on it. I guess as, uh, as a film that has so much of a reputation, even when it was not an extant film and about which so much has been written, what if anything surprised you about it as a completed film? Um, how modern it is. I've, I've said this before, that if it had been released in the end of the 70s, when, we, when, when Orson shot it, it would have been considered mod- very modern, avant-garde, fresh, youthful, surprising. And here it is almost 45 years ago almost 50 years later, and it still is all those things, which speaks to the fact that Orson was always way, way ahead of his time. One of the other points that runs through the book, and which I think is really relevant to the film, and I think will be really relevant to how it's received and talked about, is he, at, at least one point, uh, is very, very urgently makes the uh makes the point made that uh the discourse of a character in his films is not necessarily the discourse of the films and this is very much the case with the other side of the wind which is you know very much centered around the Hannaford character but uh you can't say that Hannaford's ethos is what carries the movie it's very much a sort of deconstruction of or a picking apart of that, you know, hairy-chested kind of brusque masculine persona. Is it true that, uh, I mean, what were some of the models that were spoken about uh, for the Hannaford character? I've heard Hemingway is somebody who's been cited. Yeah, and Jack Ford and, and uh, Hemingway, I guess, and Houston himself. Yeah. What, what do you think made it imperative in Wells's mind to address this kind of character, this kind of old, old guard macho at well, this I, particular point? Well, I don't know. I point. think he was, he was interested in debunking it in a funny way. I don't think he, he didn't particularly like that kind of... But Ford was his favorite director, but American director, but his favorite all-time director was Jean Renoir. And um, he loved Ford, but I think he, he definitely... Uh, was anti-macho, as is evidenced by the last image in the picture, which is the plastic erection being chopped down. And there's also this sense of kind of abiding sexual confusion, the 
you know, sort of long-haired kind of ambiguous uh, quality that the John Dale character has and all of the confusion that that kicks up. I wonder if you could just say a few words about Wells as a director or as a handler of actors. Well, he was very good with actors because he he created an atmosphere that I've never experienced with anybody else, an atmosphere of total freedom. You just felt like you, you, could, you, you uh, could do anything. You may not exactly like it that way, but you, you may uh, change it, ask you to do it slightly differently. But you didn't feel constricted. I don't know how else to describe it. It just felt free. You felt free to just be, be the character, be, the, be yourself. And, um, and Orson would be there to guide you if, if, he, if you got too far afield from what he had in mind. And at one point, uh, this, will, this will allow us to kind of shuffle into Heaton. Uh, you, you do talk about in uh, This is Orson Welles, Heaton, and he makes the wonderful statement that he's one of the most beautiful men to ever appear on screen, which is such an interesting <laughs> interesting thing to say and again speaks i think to the fact that he was not this like self-described macho to be sort of comfortable (laughs) making that statement is not the sort of thing i think you'd hear from a john houston or someone like that could you talk a little bit about how the the keaton film coalesced yeah well um charles cohen who owns who has acquired the great keaton period which is the 20s from 20 to 28, um, through 28. And he asked me if I would like to make a documentary about Buster Keaton. I, I like, I loved Keaton. I had first seen his work when my father took me to the Museum of Modern Art when I was about five, six, seven years old and saw a lot of Keaton, a lot of Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin. And, and I loved Keaton's work. And I, I felt that I made a couple of pictures that were at least partially influenced by Keaton, like What's Up Doc, and The Chase, is, I, used to, I kept calling it a Buster Keaton chase, which it sort of was. Not that he made that many chase sequences, I can't really think of any particularly, but I, I loved Keaton. And um, so we, Charles Cohen asked me if I, could, if I would like to make a documentary, I said, sure. One of the things, even for somebody who's pretty well up on the Keaton filmography, that really surprised me was the television material, which I was less familiar with. Now I'd seen dribs and drabs of things, but the fact that he had this sort of renaissance in the 1950s and into the 60s. um, Were you familiar with all of that material going in? Not particularly, no. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Did a lot of commercials. Yeah. I I guess it sort of drives through the idea that that first years of television or the early years of television were really not that far from the silent period that you would have, you know, there was almost a linkage of hands. Did you ever actually meet Keaton? No, I wish I had. Uh, I was trying to track him down just when he died. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't. I knew he was living not too far from where I was living. I didn't know how to get to him, and I was trying to figure it out. And then he died. Mm. You do something rather interesting structurally in the film, which is that you work chronologically through Keaton's life 
and get to the end of his life before you go back and talk about the great feature films. Uh, what was behind that decision? An old showbiz maxim, always leave him laughing. And I didn't want to end the picture. I didn't want to have this great flowering in the middle of the picture and then the rest of it is downhill. And uh, when I w- was informed that a year before he'd passed away, the Venice Film Festival in Italy had done a tribute to Buster, a, a big tribute, and that he had received the longest standing ovation in the history of the festival. I mean, like 10 minutes, they just kept applauding. And uh, when I heard that, I thought, well, that'd be interesting to go back to that at the end of the picture and, and bring in the features at that point, because the features are the great, the great work. The, the shorts were good, too, of course. So we covered the shorts, and then we skipped and went on and came back. A number of people had commented on that and said they liked that. Some of the more academic people didn't like it because they thought it was that the chronology was, shouldn't be broken. But Charles Cohen was dubious about it, but now that he's seen it play with an audience, he, he, he sees what I was thinking. I was thinking of the audience, really. I didn't want to leave them. It was a celebration, and I didn't, I call it Buster Keaton, the great Buster, a celebration. I didn't want to celebrate the thing and end up sad. I mean, it is sad that he died and this happened at the Venice Film Festival. He was amazed that he was so lauded and remembered over there. You know, this is the United States of Amnesia. They don't remember the great things. We've, that this country's produced. Um, so I just thought it would be more, uh, save the best for last. And as somebody who's spent a lifetime with these films, watching and re-watching, making this film and having the opportunity to sort of really hunker down and be locked in a room with Buster for weeks and months on end, were there any things that occurred to you or things that jumped out about the films or discoveries that surprised you even after all these years? Well, in a way, um, he just was even better than I thought. Again, I think the operative word is modernity. Uh, Yeah, modern. He's very modern. He's not sentimental, which is what Mars Chaplin a little bit. It's a, a sort of Victorian sentimentality. Well, this is very modern because he's not sentimental at all. I think Johnny Knoxville speaks quite well to this point, yeah. actually. Yeah, we had a lot of good interviews. A lot of people wanted to talk about Buster. Yeah, was it just a matter of running a flag up and people started coming out the woodwork? or I don't know how we did it. We just we, we heard so-and-so liked Keaton. Or we, we asked him if they'd like to talk about Keaton, you know, things like that. Well, the only person we couldn't get, which we regretted, was uh, uh, Jackie Chan. Because Jackie Chan has openly said he's been very influenced by Keaton. But we just couldn't work it out schedule-wise. And Wes Anderson was going to do it, but he, he was in Europe and we couldn't get over there. And Noah Baumbach was going to do it and he was shooting. So, you know, the few people that wanted to do it, agreed to do it, I just, we just couldn't work out the scheduling. Just talking about both... Keaton and Wells and the sort of workaround that you find to 
give Keaton a happy ending in the documentary, does it does it feel like with the other side of the wind there's some kind of victory lap at long last for oh, sure. Wells? Oh yeah, definitely. And people like like the picture. I wasn't sure how it would play with an audience, um, Orson's film. But it seemed to play quite well at the New York Film Festival with about a thousand people, and they seemed to like it very much. It got laughs, it got applause, and it's gotten some good reviews. I mean, one of the things that's striking about it is just how dense it is. It's a very sad film. Mm-hmm. I hasten to say it's one of the saddest films I've ever seen. But it's so brilliantly done that the brilliance of the execution makes it uh, not so sad. Mm. Which is the same story, same issue with Citizen Kane. There isn't really one positive thing that happens to that guy at the end of the picture. It's all downhill. But the artistry with which it's accomplished, shown, is so powerful that you, you come out of it saying, basically, only art can save us. I mean, the final image really is quite desolate. Um, do you feel that Wells was pessimistic about the state of the art? at that point yeah and i mean you can even extend that to your last picture show which it's right there in the title there's this sense that this the circus is leaving town and that the great work is already done well i even had a line in my first film in targets i played a young director and i was a young young director in it and i had a line which everybody's asked me about which is i said all the great all the good movies have been made I do think that. I did feel that way. I tried to make a few good ones, but you know, the, the great period really was from 1915 till about 1962. And yet at the same time that there's this... It was thing. the foundation of movies. It was, the, it was the, you know, the, the beginning of the art, and it's always the most exciting part. It's not just movies. Um, all the arts are basically in decadence. You don't have anybody painting like Rembrandt or Turner or Da Vinci. Uh, you have, there's no painting like that. There's nobody writing novels like they did in the ni- 19th century. There's no Dostoevsky or uh, Mark Twain or any of the great writers. There's no novels like that good, that good. Um, there's no music as good as Mozart or, or Haydn or any of the great... Uh, composers so it's not surprising that the greatest period of the movies was the earliest period the earliest years when it was just a young medium and everybody was finding finding uh, new ways of, of, of using it there have been good movies I don't mean to say that there haven't been any good movies made since then 62 but it just was a, as a period um, it was high, the, the great period but somewhat paradoxically, as pessimistic as the other side of the wind is, as you say, it is very much, or it feels very much like a young man's picture. Yes, that's right. Well, that's Orson, you know. He, he had that quality, even as a, as a, in, in, in personal discourse, he was very youthful and not an old man in any way. Despite this almost career-long obsession with old age and with the end of the yeah, life. Yeah, he, it's true. He made, even his first kind of kids movie that he made, the Hearts, Hearts of Age, 
that was what it's called, um, was about old age, yeah. He was, he was, I don't know if the word, if the word is obsessed, but he certainly was interested in that. And as somebody who knew him as a much younger man, how has your view of him shifted as you've you know, got on later in life? Do you feel like you're, you understand aspects of his character differently or better? Well, I think he was very courageous and very brave and uh, indestructible because in the face of all the shit he took and, and the hard times he had just making pictures, and so many times the pictures were taken away from him or recut or all that shit, uh, he just kept going. He, he, as, as, as Oya Kodar, who was his companion for the last 20 years, and she's in the picture, she said he was unstoppable, and he was. And he was always youthful, even at the end, you know? That's an interesting thing in, in The Great Buster is you show um, in the work that he was doing, even quite late in life, the Canadian railway film, that he was still had this great active comic mind. Yeah. Like well, he the, was a comic genius. Yeah, but you know everything was there. It was just the resources weren't being put towards it. Well, that's right. Again, he didn't, you know, he didn't have the money. Uh, so many years wasted and doing junk that that was not up to his level, and he had no control over it. And he was, as somebody says in the movie, he was a mild person. He wasn't uh, bossy. And uh, in that Canadian short film that you mentioned, you see how he behaves when he says, "Yeah, he changed the gag on me," and then he says. Uh, not funny. It's not. That's not funny. He, he knew what was funny, what wasn't funny. He, he had an instinct about it that was perfect. You know, he just had a sense of of what was funny and what wasn't. I mean, he was a star at age of four in vaudeville. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, both like very precocious characters, Keaton and Wells. Oh, like, both of them were very precocious. Yeah. Never any sort of doubt about. I won't say no doubt about what was going to be done, but some idea of like a, a, a great destiny in store in both cases. I think one thing that's um, interesting, again, to go back to uh, this is Orson Welles, is how fascinated he is, not only with old age, but with people, the sort of image of the great man out of power. Uh, you excerpt at length something that he wrote about the one time that he saw D.W. Griffith... Uh, kind of down at the heels, hanging around Hollywood, and he talks about bumping into Churchill right after Churchill had been voted out of office, um, which speaks to, I guess, just a persistent interest in, I won't say losers precisely, but... Fall of great men. The fall of great men, yeah. Just something, something about the business, I suppose. Well, yeah, it, it is a ruthless uh, and unforgiving business, it's true. But, you know, you just keep going. And what's next on the docket? I'm not sure. I have a, a number of th projects that, I, that I'm juggling. The one I want to make most is the most difficult one, of course. It's a picture called Wait For Me, 
which I've been trying to get made for a while. I keep changing the script. That's one of the things that holds it up. I just rewrote it, rewrote it again. But the, after thirty years, I've been fucking around with this thing. It's a it's a, a strange picture. It's a, a kind of very personal in some ways. It's a comedy drama fantasy because there's ghosts in it, about six ghosts and uh, friendly ghosts, not scary ones. I'll do it eventually. The problem with it is that it's 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 um, um, technically difficult because it plays in five cities and four countries in Europe. It all plays in Europe and um, huge cast. And it's about the movie business to a degree. It's about a movie maker, kind of a star director, actor, writer, like Cassavetes or, or Orson or Woody Allen, somebody like that. The character's not like any of those people, but he does it all. He's a star as well, and he can't... He, been persona non grata in in Hollywood. Um, he's been married six times. He has six daughters. His last wife, his youngest wife, died in a plane crash six years before the picture begins. And he went. He's been going downhill, and he can't can't get work in Hollywood because they think he's crazy. And um, it, it's it all plays in about a week or two. Um, and you meet all the wives, and you meet all the daughters, and it's an interesting picture. I've been working on it for a long time. I just added some whole element that I think uh, is interesting. Anyway, that's one picture. Then there's a, a heist picture that I, we wrote years ago, and we might resurrect that because it's sort of more commercial and easier to put together. And um, with Charles Cohen, I have a tell a limited a limited series they call it um which is about the actually the first moving pictures which was uh, a guy named Stanford who was, was a tycoon and uh, he was obsessed with the idea with, he was obsessed with the question he loved horses and he was obsessed with the question when a horse is running are its four hooves ever off the ground all at the same time he wanted to know that so he hired, this is a true story, so he hired a most famous photographer of that period, a guy named Mybridge, and English guy, to take photographs to somehow prove that yes or no, the horse, four hooves were off the ground all at the same time or not. Mybridge eventually figured out a way to prove that one way or the other by a complicated me measure of 24 cameras <laughs> lined up, and as the horse ran, it tripped each a photograph on each camera. And when you project, when you projected it, it was the first moving picture. And the horse's hooves, yes, were off the ground at one point, all before. So there's also a murder involved because Mybridge, Mybridge's wife, was cheating on him with a guy and. My bitch went over and shot the guy four times, killed him, and got, got, and got off. You're going back to the very origins of the origins. Yeah, 1872. Yeah. And this is the series in question? Yeah, limited series. Called, we're calling it Magic Lantern. Is there anyone who strikes you as kind of bringing the Keaton legacy into the present day right now? Funnily enough, when watching the movie, I, I was thinking about 
just the wonderful work that John Ritter does in your film, They All Laughed, and what a sort of sublime physical comedian. Oh, John he was. was John was extraordinary. I mean, John was, was was up there with Buster. He was a great physical comedian and a great friend and a great guy, and I miss him every day. Hmm. Is there anyone who you think is still working on that level? <laughs> it's a lost art. Well, it's just you know, once in a while somebody comes along that's really got it. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can invent you know, or learn. It's just you either got it or you don't. I mean, you see John in Noises Off, he falls down the stairs. Jesus, he did that too. Mm. He, he, he was amazing. And then they all laughed. He's got all that shtick with the roller skates and all that. Yeah, the straw, straw work <laughs> yes. alone. That was 27 takes to get that. Uh, it's, it plays beautifully. He was a great friend. I really miss him a lot. One of the greats. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. uh, Good luck with all going forward. Thank you. Thank you. And we shall sign off here. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Angie. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.